plot twists. We're obsessed with them. In film, life and love, they turn up everywhere. It's that defining moment when a story, any story, takes you in an unexpected direction. I'm Tom, superhero buff and comedy lover. And I'm Fran, reality TV obsessive and true crime enthusiast. And we're from Now TV. And throughout this series, we're going to be interviewing TV and film stars, asking them all about their favourite plot twists, both on and off screen. So expect the unexpected and hopefully some behind-the-scenes nuggets that you've never heard before. Contain spoilers. Obviously. Tom, you're back! Hello, it's good to be back. Feeling good, feeling fresh. Uh, it's been a few weeks and a lot has happened, Fran, actually. It's been a big couple of weeks. Are you going to tell us what happened? Yeah, guys. Dun, dun, dun. I got engaged. Woo-hoo! Oh, amazing. <laughs> I know, it's been great. And don't worry, I have been milking it every single day since. I mean, you really have, you really have. Congratulations. But I'm just thinking for poor Nick, I mean, that's a life sentence, isn't it? Yeah, I know. I, I, <laughs> I couldn't be the one to say that myself, but I probably sadly have to agree. But actually, a life sentence is pretty on topic for this week's guest, who actually, like my now fiancé, is also called Nicholas. Yes, our guest this week is Nicholas Pinnock, who is the lead star of a new series called For Life, which is on Now TV. Uh, This is an American legal drama series, Fran. Yeah, so Nicholas plays this guy called Aaron Wallace, who has been imprisoned for a crime that he basically didn't commit. And while he's in prison, it's really, it's insane, but he actually manages to pass the New York bar by finding some loopholes in the system and ends up working as a defence attorney. So while he's in prison, he's going to court to try and overturn his fellow inmates' convictions, while obviously, at the same time, trying to overturn his own. Yeah, it's crazy because there isn't actually a show out there that's quite like it because you have Aaron Wallace, he's the family man, he's the inmate that's trying to get to grips with prison life. And then you've got the sharp lawyer in the pinsuit, you know, working on these cases. It's an incredible dynamic between the three. Yeah, I think what's even more insane is that it's actually loosely based on a real life story, which is the story of Isaac Wright Jr. I mean, it almost seems far fetched to believe it's actually true, but it but it is. Um and it actually comes from an unlikely source in uh, Curtis Jackson, otherwise known as 50 Cent, who uh, is the executive producer on this series and actually stars and plays a, a pretty uh, a pretty interesting character. Interesting I'm leave character. It at that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're not so familiar with Nicholas Pinnock, let's have a little bit of a rewind on some of the stuff that he's been involved rewind. in. Rewind. <laughs> <laughs> like some sort of DJ that's just stepped in. What's going on? Sorry, I couldn't help so, myself. Uh, uh, so listeners may be aware of Nicholas' work. He's actually been in some pretty big roles, uh, played Frank in Fortitude, Jason and Marcella. And he's actually the second person to talk about a certain series called Top Boy, where he actually played Leon. I know, and not to spoiler alert to anyone who's about to listen to the interview, but actually the story of how he got the role in Top Boy is pretty cool. It's a good one. I, I'm going to put it out there, Fran. I reckon it might be the most interesting and complex plot twist we've had so far. Yeah, it's just a general great, great audition story. So anyway, we've got loads of stuff to chat to Nicholas about, so we're not going to hold you up any longer with our waffle. So here he is. It's Nicholas Pinnock on Plot Twist. Nicholas, welcome to Plot Twist. Lovely to have you on. I know you're, uh, you're pretty busy at the moment, so I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. Thank you very much. That's all right, no problem. So have you literally just come off uh, the set today? 
Um, no, I've been having press all day today because season two premieres tonight on ABC over here. Oh, very so, exciting. So um, it's a day full of press for me. Big day. Do you get the nerves when a new series comes out, the, when it comes out like that? Do you still... Well, funny, I think no. Season one, yes. Um, I am more nervous now about the UK seeing it for the first time, my home market, really, because um, it'll be my first leading performance in a major TV series that, uh, you, know, my, my, you know, my home nation is seeing for the first yeah. time. So I'm more nervous about Friday than I am for Wednesday. Yeah, two days to go, two days to go. Yeah. Talk about the, the British-American thing, actually. It's another British actor taking on a, a lead role as an American. What is it about British actors that seem to be doing so well at the moment? I just think the training is so good. There's something about the way that we approach work that's not, I wouldn't say better, it's just different to how American actors um, approach their work. We have a lot of actors over here who don't have any theatre background and go straight into television and film. And so there are certain details and nuances that you only get through rehearsing one character for you know weeks on end to understand the depths you have to go through and that you can get to to portray a character. And I think that's one of the things that gets missed with American actors. And I think also, you know, we have access to a deeper understanding of characterization mm -hmm. generally than they do here. But, you know, I say that actors in New York, however, who have Broadway and off-Broadway and they do a lot of theatre, they seem to bring it the same way that the UK actors do. Okay. It's always interesting, though, when you see an American audience, they're like, that guy's British? I didn't know that. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, that does, that does fox them quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah, but I think, you know, we grew up with a lot of American television. Mm. And so you're used to the accent, you're used to the um, intonations and the, and the vowel sounds in a way that the US aren't familiar with the UK. Yeah. But also, I went to an American international school when I was eight, when I lived out in Saudi Arabia. I was there for four years. So, you know, you're a kid man. from London that, you know, goes to this school and you see lots of people from all over the world, literally. Mm. And uh, you, you want to assimilate as much as possible. I couldn't change my skin color and blend in with the majority so I changed my accent and I didn't realize that until years and years and years and years later. And I realized that every other child, now even children that were blonde hair, blue eyed from Sweden that had, you know, that were learning English, yeah. they adopted the American accent as opposed to the, you know, the British English. And because you just wanted to assimilate as much as possible and not stand out as much. And so I walked around for four years with an American accent, but I'd always, as a child, when I first started at 12 acting, I always had a, um, an interest in the sounds, the different sounds that people make. Because I started traveling from when I was five. My you know, parents would travel us everywhere. And uh, I just loved the different sounds that these different people from all over the world would make. And so I would mimic a lot of the time. And I would um, try and sound like the locals. Yeah. Uh, and so this was, um, you know, this was not an easy challenge, but it was, you know, definitely a challenge. It was quite a young age that you actually wanted to start acting, weren't you? Like four or five? I mean, that's... Four. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you can't get much younger, so right? So young. I mean... <laughs> well, I realised that that square thing in the corner of the room that made my family react like that was something I wanted to be in. I wanted to be in the small box in the corner of the room. 
because you'd see, you know, I'd see my family cry and laugh and watch intently, and it just captured their attention in a way that nothing else mm. about my life at that point did. And I remember very, very clearly the day I decided what I wanted to do. I think Cannon and Ball was on the TV, and I'd just seen, I think it was the year that Elvis Presley died. 77. And I, and he's 77, that's right, I would have been four. And um, there was a big picture of his face on the screen and there were clips of him singing and dancing and, you know, acting in these movies. And I think they did like a marathon or a, a couple of... I remember watching them thinking, oh, my God, this is fantastic. Mm. This is brilliant. And then Cannon and Ball were, you know, always made me laugh. I just thought I wanted to be an entertainer. I didn't know in what part of entertainment I wanted to do. So I learned it all. I wanted to do all of it to find out which one of those ones was the one for me. You must be you must be loving life now. Um, we've got a feature uh, random question generator. It's I guess designed to kind of get to know you a little bit more. So I thought we'd chuck a few sort of random questions at you before kind of deep diving more into your career and and then of course for life. How's that sound? Okay, shoot, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, it's the plot twist podcast. We have to throw a bit of a spanner in the works here and there. We we like to try and find a question you might not have been asked before. So our first oh, one that we've got, on. <laughs> which actually might relate to your four year old self watching the telly was when you were a kid, what movie did you watch over and over again? Bedknobs and Broomsticks, I think. Oh, I loved Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Yeah. Straight off. You just that knew. one and, and escape, escape to Witch Mountain. Ooh. You may not be old enough to remember that film. <laughs> no, I'm not sure I am, actually, if I'm being <laughs> Yeah. What was it that you loved about Bedknobs and Broomsticks? It was the fantasy of it all and the escapism, really. Mm. The supernatural world of it all without it being scary. But it was just a warm family movie. It was a, a, a film that we all would sit down and watch. Mm. Yeah. Brings the family together, which is always great. Yeah. What was yours, Fran? I I loved Matilda. I always wanted to be Mrs. Honey from Matilda. Again, sort of uh. that fantasy world and being the lovely teacher that she sought solace in. Like, I just, I just loved, I loved Matilda. So our next question is slightly different. Hold on, um, I want to know what Tom's is. Oh, yeah, Tom, what's yours? Uh... I liked a lot of the classical comedies from the 70s and 80s, like Porridge and Open All Hours and, of course, Only Falls. But if I had to pick a film, it'd probably be Mrs. Doubtfire. I just love the mischief of Robin Williams. <laughs> oh. How could you not, right? We love Robin Williams. That was a classic. So the next one, yeah, slightly, slightly different tact, but how much would you say you plan for the future? I guess it's kind of hard right now, right? Not a great deal. I'm very much a um, spontaneous here and now type person like to live in the moment yeah yeah i suppose I like I think this present. year has shown us that we can't plan too far ahead um, and expect <laughs> no. that the world's going to carry on the way that it was I yeah, suppose. Not at all. should you do one more yeah i think we've got time for one more uh so what small things brighten up your day when they happen people send me flowers oh, nice. you, what's your favorite flower i like roses classic very classic yeah yeah i like that Great. I've got a, um, a yellow rose bush in my front garden. It brings me a lot of and joy. And it's the yellow ones that are my favourites. <laughs> well, yeah. there we go. <laughs> I actually planted it in lockdown and to see it growing outside the front of the house. Oh, is fantastic. Delightful. I feel like my option um, of coffee was a bit pathetic now. Yeah, I went for WhatsApp voice notes, so um, <laughs> also not great. <laughs> so, uh, Nicholas, this is a plot twist podcast. We've got to ask you a, um, a plot twist question. Obviously, for life is an incredible story, but we always like to sort of deep dive into our guests' own career and their own narrative. Looking at your career, has there been an obvious plot twist moment where perhaps your own narrative has changed? Yes. What might that be? 
Oh, do you need more context? Yeah, for sure. More <laughs> oh, okay, right, yeah. Um, so about, let me see, maybe 11 years ago, 11 or 12 years ago, um, I hadn't given up acting, but I had started to be a lot more discerning about jobs I did and didn't take. I always have been, but I just became a lot more so because I knew where I wanted to go. I needed money. I was modeling at the time and I was dancing and doing all sorts of things because I, you know, had trained as a dancer and a singer as well. So I was doing, you know, all the bits. And then modeling came and I was modeling and dancing across the world and I gave up all those things. I said, you know, acting is what I want to focus on now. I've, you know, had a great dance career and traveled the world with modeling. Acting is uh, the thing that I want to focus on because I've been acting since I was 12 and I've been dipping in and out of it and, you know, quite steadily, but not making the moves that I'd wanted to. So I got to 30 and thought, right, that's it. Um, so then by the time I was 35, I was 30,000 pounds in debt. Wow. I was three months in arrears with my mortgage. I was just paying the minimum amount on my credit cards. I was working in a hotel in um, Albert Embankment in London. I was doing two teaching jobs as an acting coach and a voice and dialect coach. And I had someone living in my spare room. Things weren't great, mm. but I was being offered work, but I was turning it down because it just wasn't the type of work I wanted to do. And mm. I'd never at any point taken a job through acting just for the money. It was always for the love of the character or the story, never for the money. So I could have taken these jobs and they would have wiped my debt. I would have had X amount of houses and cars by now, but that's not, that wasn't for me. I then got sent a script and they wanted me for one part. But as I was reading this script, this other role just kept jumping out at me. And I kept going, oh my gosh, this, this is the role I need to play. This is the one that's really speaking to me. So I called my agent. It was another one of the other characters, yeah. yeah. So I called my agent and I said, listen, the script is fantastic. It's a great story. It's a, you know, a world I'm interested in being a part of. The character is okay, but there's another character that really, really speaks to me. Can you ask a casting director if I can cast for that character as well? The feedback was that um, that part was reserved for a big TV actor, big TV name. But, you know, you can read for it anyway, just as an exercise to add to me reading to the other characters. I said, okay. So I went in on the day, spoke to the casting director, and he said to me, um, I heard you didn't like the part that I put you up for. And I said, no, it wasn't that I didn't like it. I just said, I think there's something about this one that I think I can lend my talents to better. He said, oh, okay. And, you know, we had a chat about it. And he said, okay, are you ready to, to, to do your audition? And I said, yeah. And he said, um, I said, which one do you want me to do first? And he said, um, oh, just do the one you want to do. I think you're right about, you know, I think you're better, better for that other character. I said, oh, okay. So I read for that role. Spent about 25 minutes in the room with the director. We were improvising, doing all sorts of things. Left the room. I was walking down the road and I heard my name being shouted. I turned around. I thought, oh, maybe I've left my sunglasses or something in the <laughs> casting director's room because I saw him running down the road. And he said, Nicholas, he said, listen, you've got the role. He goes, I'm going to call your agent on Monday. And, um, you know, that's it. The role is yours. Is it usually that quick? I just thought, 
well, this is the thing. I just thought, no, this is industry bullshit. I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. And he said, but listen, I heard that you teach as well. And was, we've got some kids coming into the show that have never really done much acting before. Can you, you know, help them out? I said, yeah, of course. I said, look, I'll come and do, you know, and help out anyway. You don't have to fake offering me the part to get me to do it. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 the part's yours. So I'm, I'm thinking, no, nonsense. So then I'm sitting in a, um, a hotel room in, in Germany. I get a phone call from my agent saying, um, you've just been offered that role in Top Boy that you wanted. <laughs> I went, you're kidding me. And he said, yeah, that, that role is yours. And, I, and it was, that was a defining moment in my career. Wow. That was the plot twist. What is it when you're looking at the script like that? What has to jump out for you to think, wow, this is, this is me. I've got to do this. Oh, so it has to scare the shit out of me. I like it. Oh, really? If it doesn't scare me and if it doesn't kick me in a place that really hurts and it really hit me in the gut and I go, okay, this, I don't think I can play this role. I don't, I know that I'm drawn to it, but I don't think I can do this. Then I actually have to do it to prove that I can do it or that I can be challenged. Because if it, every role I look for has to be more challenging than the last in some way, shape or form. And it may not mm. seem that way to the audience, but to me, I understand what that small shift is and what that challenge is and why it speaks to me and why I then want to go ahead and do it. How do you push yourself from that sort of, I don't think I can do this, to turning up on set and doing mm. it? Because that must be quite daunting, that kind of leaning into that feeling of feeling scared by putting yourself into that. Well, I think, I think it's the artist's mind. I think it's just that kind of, what can we create? Because for me, it's a collaboration. It's not, I'm not a solo mm. entity, you know. Um, whatever anybody sees me put up on screen, it's the collaboration with the director, with the other actors, with the writer, with the showrunner, you know, all those things. And then, you know, you just see us deliver what we deliver. But it's the, it's the, um, it's the study in your own time. It's understanding. People would say to me, how do you learn lines so quickly? And I say, learn, learning lines is actually pretty easy. Knowing what to do with them is what makes it very hard. Mm. And so it's just understanding the, the nuances of story, storytelling, dramatic beats, um, pauses, all of these things that, that for me, that's the challenge. How can I tell my part of a story? How can I portray my character within this framework of a story in a way that is believable, interesting, entertaining and meaningful if i am able to do those things and tick those boxes then i can walk away with my head held high knowing that i've done my best whether it was good or good enough is a completely different story so for me it's all about the process not the end product which is why i don't watch anything and i haven't watched for a, still not a watch very anything? very long time now no i haven't for a while now wow. um if wow. i've exec on a project like I like Zekon short films, for instance. You kind of got to, right? I will then watch because it's, yeah, because it's, it, it's not about me at that point. There's other things that, you know, my involvement lies in. You know, the, is there another shot? Can that scene not be cut so quickly? That music break needs to come sooner. You know, all these kinds of things I can add to. So it's not, I'm not just looking at the one thing that I contributed. I've, they've got, I've got a lot more to contribute. But when it's just me as the actor, it's very difficult because, you know, the... End product is, is nothing to do with me. Those decisions weren't mine. Mm. What was it about for life then that scared the shit out of you? <laughs> that made you want to do it? So ABC and I had been talking for a while about the possibility of working on a project together. And um, I was never a big fan of 
of network television. But, you know, I said, listen, if there was anything that comes along, let me know. Maybe, maybe there's something that may pique my interest. So I got sent for life. And immediately I went, no, no, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm good. I don't want to do it. <laughs> I didn't even read it. But my manager said, listen, just have a read. So I read it and I said, okay, <laughs> this is good. This is good. I said, it's going to get picked up for a season. I said, but, you know, it, it, it needs to be more challenging for me. So then I got on the phone to the creatives. The creatives uh, wanted to talk to me, Hank Steinberg, the um, creator and showrunner. And we had a four-hour conversation. And after that conversation, I realised that that's somebody that I wanted to work with. That was somebody I wanted to mm -hmm. collaborate with um, because he was very open. He had no ego. He was very, you know, willing to listen and understand what it was that he felt that I needed. And also, you know, understanding what my contribution could be. And then, you know, extensive conversations with execs and creatives then made me realise that this was not going to be your average network television show. It was going to be a cable-style show for network television. Mm. And when I understood that they were going to scratch beneath the surface of what um, network television had been up until this point, and when I, you know, having spoken to Hank and we were talking about the character a lot more and reading about uh, Isaac Wright Jr. and understanding that this is a far bigger subject matter than just a man mm. in jail who's mm. innocent. The fear rose. And the moment the fear hit me, I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. I need to do this job. Tell us about when you first met Isaac Wright Jr. Because, I mean, if you heard this story, someone told you about it, you'd almost think it seems so far-fetched, but it's, it is loosely based on his own journey of a man who's wrongly incarcerated, fights for his own justice, as well as his inmates in prison, and ultimately finds his freedom. What was your first response when you heard that from him? I met him on the day that we did the table read. Now, there was, a, there was a, almost 100 people in this room, cameras set up so the network and the studio could see us do this table read for the first time. Uh, Curtis was there sitting next to me and also, and it was just this whole thing. And... Um, he then walks into the room and I instantly know who he is and he knows who I am. He looks and I look and we sort of, you know, raise a hand and wave. And then I sort of signal for him to, you know, stay there. And I walk over to him and I drag him into the room that was literally right behind him. And I said, talk to me. Because mm -hmm. I had all these ideas and all these things of how I was going to portray Aaron. But then when I looked at him, I thought, there are some things I need to know before I open my mouth and let them see the ideas that I've got for this mm -hmm. character. And we spent about 50 minutes in this room and people kept knocking, but I kept going, give us five minutes, give us five minutes, give us five minutes. Because he was just so open and he was pouring out, you know, gems of information and, and wisdom and, you know, imparting knowledge on the prison system and all these kinds of things. And I just started to get an understanding and an essence of him. Now I'm not playing a like for like for him. So I don't have to look like him, didn't have to sound like him, didn't have to walk like him, anything like that. Because it's a show inspired by the true life mm. events, but not based on. But there were essences of him that I needed, that I didn't even realize that I needed, but I needed to understand how to play Aaron. So that 50 minutes changed how I then delivered the table read. And it evolved yeah. from there. From there on, it just grew into this thing. So, for instance, it's one of the things that he told me helped me understand what my physicality for Aaron was going to be. 
Now, I hate Aaron's physicality because it is so different to mine and it mm. hurts my back. But it's what he needs. His vocal tone, for instance, is in a register that mine isn't and it's in a different dialect. And there are just certain, you know, things. I mean, no one will notice this, but Aaron never puts his hands in his pockets. Okay. And that's all to do with his time in prison and being prepared and being ready for things. And, you know, it can sometimes give away signals. And so it's all, so it's all these sort of little detailed things that Aaron does that um, I would never do in my own life. And so Isaac just really, and he doesn't know to what extent, but he really helped me understand and define certain characteristics and attitudes and essences about who um, we see Aaron on TV to be. And have you seen him since the show has gone out and what he thinks of it? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're on the phone maybe a couple of times a week, once every other week. He came to set... I mean, because of COVID, it's been a bit, bit more difficult for people to pop in. So he, he had to go and get tested and all sorts of things before mm -hmm. he could come to set. But I had asked him, I called him up and said, listen, I need you to come to set. Um, I need to talk to you. So he, you know, did all the necessary things and came to, uh, came to set to hang out with me for a day. I suppose you sort of evolve his character as the series goes on and those different experiences Absolutely. that he's had, you continue yeah, to build totally. on that. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Well, I was, I was just sure. going to say, he's, he said it, he's come out and said it's almost therapeutic because even after he was released from prison, he's still been fighting for justice and to, mm. you know, to, as a lawyer as well, and to be sort of administered, if you will. So I think for him to actually look back, it's actually the first time he's able to reflect almost, and he's found it quite an emotional sort of therapeutic experience. Yeah, and that's, that's the biggest compliment really from him is, yeah. to, um, to feel that. For me, it's, you know, job done for me. Not that, you know, I still haven't got anything to do, <laughs> but just that initial... Um, just that initial thing of understanding that you hit a certain mark that you, that you needed to, that was, yeah. Mm. yeah. And when, you know, you get people from, um, from inside prison or who have recently come out of prison or who are ex-offenders, you know, in my social media DMs and emails, you know, telling me that, you know, they understand who Aaron is. Mm. They knew men like Aaron or that was my dad or, you know, things like that. It really does make you go, OK, then we are doing something right. We have really captured something that, you know, speaks to, you know, the people that really do understand what's going on. Mm. Mm. I want to talk about some of the people that you've worked with. Obviously, it's quite well known that uh, a certain Curtis Jackson is involved in this project. Yes. Um, obviously, better known as 50 Cent and the sort of braggadocio, <laughs> the rapper, the man that uh, likes to provoke. Yeah. But I imagine behind the scenes, that sort of creative genius and the businessman really comes comes to life. How's that been? Oh, it's been great. I mean, you know, people ask me all the time, what's 50 Cent like? What's 50 Cent like? And the truth is, I don't know who 50 Cent is because I met Curtis Jackson. You know, he was, um, you know, very professional, very astute. I mean, he's a, he's a bit of a genius. He's a great businessman. Mm. You know, we'd turn up on set, he'd know his lines, we'd run lines, he, there was no ego, there was no entourage, and, you know, he's become a good, uh, a good collaborator, a good colleague and a friend. What's his role as exec producer as well? What's, what's that sort of role behind the scenes? So he, he basically found the project. If, you know, if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation mm. right now. 
he was in a he was going to see some guys who wanted him to promote a fight, but that fight was illegal and he couldn't be involved in it. So he got <laughs> they got their lawyers involved, and one of the lawyers was Isaac. Oh wow! And he oh. was talking to Isaac, and he said, "Hold on, what?" So he was you know telling him about his story, and while he's telling him about his story, Curtis starts googling who this guy is and goes, "Oh my gosh, this is true." I'm going to give you some money right now. I'm buying the rights to your story. And that's literally how it started. God. That's incredible. Yeah. And he's been very, very, very hands-on in, you know, the look and the feel of the show. Uh, he knows what he's doing. We've got a, a couple of plot twist questions to ask you. I just wanted to ask more around the impact of the show. And you kind of alluded to it. Is there, with this, obviously with 50 Cent, you want to create this incredible drama series. But I guess its impact, especially going to season two and what's happened in the world, is there more uh, more pressure now to make sure that the show sort of signals to some of the injustice, the racial discrimination that is prevalent in the system? I mean, it didn't listen. It didn't start out that way. The show was always about a man fighting for his freedom and uncovering the injustices that happen to minorities in this country. This show was always going to be relevant. It was relevant when it came out. It will be relevant in another 10 years' time, and it would have been relevant 10 years ago mm. because the injustices that happen to minorities in this country, not only in the judicial system, but as it's a point of conversation for this topic of the show, in the judicial system, has always been a thing. And so what's happened with recent events in the summer, it just highlights how important a show like this is because it's uncovering not exactly the same points but very similar things and it's the injustices that happen to the black community in this country whether it's being murdered by the police or being unlawfully put in prison or you know a number of other things that happen to you know black people in this country purely because of the history of slavery and the hangover of slavery, it's always going to be something. Even if someone gets, you know, people are getting, like, like we saw in season one, people being overcharged for cases that white people would have got less than sentence for. It's the injustices that are happening um, on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis in this country to, you know, certain communities. And this isn't, um, you know, beyond that, it's not, just a black problem it's it's a people problem everyone's problem. and it's not just a u.s problem it's a global problem mm. because things like that happen in the uk things like that happen in you know denmark they happen they, they happen everywhere on their on, on their own level so that's why so many people i mean i've got people in brazil dming me telling me how really? you know they identify with certain things wow. because you know you shift the narrative just by one notch and someone can identify with it. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's very relatable for so many reasons and to so many people. So it's not just a black problem, it's a people problem. It's really not just a US problem. It is a global problem. But we happen to be telling it through the lens of the US and through the community of um, black people. I, I guess just following up on that very quickly before we move on to plot twist, Isaac Wright Jr. has said the US legal system is the best of its kind, but ultimately it's the people yeah. within it that corrupt it. Being part of this, have you been surprised at how much so? Um, yes and no, honestly. 
Yes, I suppose, because it's not something you think about every day. Mm. Mm. And so, you know, you are kind of surprised at how much. But then when you look at the history of this country, you go, ah, yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's not a surprise. Yeah, it's pretty, you can understand why it's, why it's that way, because there is such, the ripple effects of slavery are still very much in motion here. In the same way that, you know, I, I, I believe that the ripple effects of the empire are very prevalent in the UK. You know, the UK seem to think that they are still the superpower of the world, which once they were, mm. but they're really not anymore. You know, look at Brexit. I'm not, I'm not really <laughs> one to talk politics, but I'm going to have to just say this one thing. If you look at how arrogant the proposal was, we're going to leave Europe and we're still going to have everything that we had before because we're the UK, we're Britain. It's like, actually, fuck off. No, you're not. <laughs> but it was the arrogance to believe that that was even going to be possible. Mm. Um, and, and, this, and that arrogance comes from the fact that they were a massive nation, you know, hundreds of years ago, and the ripple effects of that are they still believe that the, every, all those things are possible. And the reality is that it's not. Um, so it's no surprise. You know, Brexit is no surprise for me. It was no surprise that the, the nation, you know, voted that way. It was no surprise that the deal that they initially wanted was their proposal. Do you find that the show perhaps you know, shows the counter to that, though? There is a resilience and there is hope. Um, listen, there's always hope. There has to be or else, you know, we just all give up and packing our chips mm -hmm. tomorrow. Yeah. There has to be hope everywhere. And if there isn't hope, then what? What is it all about? Why are we still continuing? I mean, there's so I mean, much I could ask you about the show. We both. I was uh, going to say, yeah, we could talk love, to you all day about it. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say interesting. <laughs> well, then we should do this again. <laughs> well, we look, we want to get another sort of question in about you and your career in our um, sure. sort of plot twist fashion. Um, so, mm -hmm. one of our favorite questions to ask people we obviously love hearing about the career plot twist, but actually, is there an unexpected force in terms of a person who's been sort of a drive or an inspiration for you? My father. Oh. Did Why he, is that? Do you inspire your career? Just the support that he's given me all these years, really. That's, yeah, that's all I'm saying. I like that. It's really nice. The other plot twist to follow on from that would be for fans uh, that know you or for those that even don't know you that are coming onto the podcast, uh, what would be a surprise uh, or interesting bit of information about you? Be a surprise fact. A surprise fact. I mean, you dropped a few um, things there well, about I, the modelling and the the dancing. And I don't quite know. I don't quite. Yeah, that that will do. I don't like people knowing too much about me. So the, the modelling and the dancing that will do. And you Remain don't watch yourself back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't watch myself back. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I trained in ballet for uh, a good few years, and um, there was probably, there possibly, maybe, was a time when. I might have wanted to be a ballet dancer. I'm not sure. Yeah. Interesting. What made you choose acting? Because I was reading up that you trained in musical theatre as well. What was it about acting that you kind of set your stall out and that's where, the way you wanted to go? It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily cho a choice. I think it chose me. Mm. I went to stage school from when I was 12 and we learned to sing, dance and act. And I was fiercely ambitious. I am fiercely ambitious. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I could sing, dance and act at a very high professional standard because I wanted a job in entertainment. It was very simple. It was, mm. it was that simple for me. 
Um, so at 14, when I was doing my uh, mock exams for my GCSEs, one teacher had said, only one of you in this room is going to make it. It's a very cutthroat business. Very competitive. Most of you will not, all, all of those things. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a chance in your exams. Basically, he was telling us that you know, we could cheat. I'm going to give you a chance <laughs> in your exams um, to give you, a say, you know, something to fall back. So you have something to fall back on when it all goes wrong. And he was very clear about it. When it goes wrong, you're going to have something to fall back on. So it was like someone hit me in the head with a cricket bat. And I thought, hold on, if I have something to fall back on, I may probably fall back on it and not make this work. Fuck that, not doing that. So I deliberately failed all of my exams. Deliberately, because I didn't have, wouldn't so have, didn't have a fallback fall plan. On. Nope, Why no fallback plan. There was no plan B. There was always a plan A. And if a plan A wasn't working, you just tweak plan A. Yeah. So I didn't have a backup. I didn't have a plan B. That's a ballsy move. Um, it was either really, really, really genius or really, really, really arrogant as a 14 year old. <laughs> um, it paid I off. Quite it paid off. Out which yet. Um, and so. And so I, so I then, I, di I didn't know what I was going to do after school. So then I went to London Studio Centre because lots of, you know, lots of people from my school were going to this, you know, dance college. So I thought, okay. So I, I went and I studied ballet and contemporary dance, tap, jazz, singing. And there was an acting course as well. I, you know, went on, I loved acting at school. So I thought, right, I'm going to continue acting. And, and all this time I was working on TV, all mm. of, from the age of 12 right up until now. So I had been working and I always liked the aspect of storytelling. And, you know, when I gave up singing professionally and when I gave up dancing professionally, I knew that I could, I had fulfilled what I needed to in those arenas for myself, mm. regardless of what anyone else thinks for me. But acting was the one thing that I couldn't walk away from. It was something I kept going back to and I kept going back to and I kept going back to. And it's almost like it, it just, it wouldn't let go of me. And so... Um, I, I knew at one point that that's what I was going to pursue because I could have, you know, gone on to do choreography. I had a chance to do that, but it just didn't excite me in the way that, you know, doing a play would, for instance. Mm. Um, but, you know, I still miss dancing. I still miss singing. And I, you know, I'm always looking for the opportunities to do it within my career. It will happen at some point, but uh, it just hasn't happened Could be yet. the next one. Who knows? <laughs> and to just loop back round to where we started... What do you think your four-year-old self would say to you now, seeing what you've, how far you've come? Oh, my four-year-old self is looking up at me now going, oh, my goodness. <laughs> how brilliant. Yeah. All our dreams have come true. He's, he's, my four-year-old self is loving me right now. You're now in um, the box beautiful. in the corner of That's the room. Beautiful. I'm in the box in the corner of the room. Yeah, he can see himself and he's really happy. That's really beautiful. My four-year-old self is, is running around like a mad thing, really ecstatically happy, yeah. The four-year-old in me is ecstatic about where I'm at and what's, what the future holds and, you know, what I've been through. Yeah, very happy. No, no complaints in that area at all. Well, I've loved that, Nicholas. Thank you so much for coming this on This has been Twist. great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, guys. No, it's been a really lovely chat. I generally watched uh, a few episodes the other night. It was one of those rare occasions recently where I've been like, I've got to watch the next one. I've got to watch the next one. It was that You good. were saying oh, it was a late yeah. night because we were, we were both going one after the after after, yeah, after yeah, the yeah. other. So... We'll be binging through the rest the moment it's available. <laughs> Bring on Friday. Oh, fantastic. Absolutely. Oh, well, thank, thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoy the rest. Let me know. Yeah, and good luck with season we'll two as well. Thanks for your time, guys.
I honestly don't think we've ever finished an interview where I've been left with such a heartwarming image of a four-year-old Nicholas Pinnock running around celebrating his future achievements. I love that. I love that he was like, he'll just no, be going wild. He'll be brilliant. celebrating. It's amazing. What amazing dedicated talented guy i mean the one thing i got out of it was this uh yes he's very serious and dedicated to his craft but there was just this what's this like deep intense love for it and his own story with the plot twist that he wasn't prepared to sort of you know sell out basically he was going to find the right role he was going to keep you know working towards what he felt was right to secure what he what he believed and i was really taken by that yeah, I hadn't really realised how many sort of parts of the craft that he'd really turned his hand to. So singing, theatre, dancing, acting. He really is kind of, I was going to say jack of all trades, but that indicates master of none. But clearly he was very, very talented in a in multitude of ways. But he really had that sort of single vision of what he wanted to achieve. I think anyone who has a vision at four years old of that career, you know they're going to achieve great things. I mean, can you have a vision any earlier? (laughs) It's not even possible. But there is something very magical, isn't it, about that acknowledgement that people come together to watch entertainment, to sort of be taken away um, from reality and completely immersed in that. And, And I feel that... I really felt that from him, that he is he is so passionate about giving that back to people. No, I completely agree. I mean, what a talent. And actually, talking of talent, I've watched the rest of the series. Oh, my goodness, you're in for a treat to watch this one. And we mentioned it before in the interview and before about the sort of the diversity of the role that he plays the lawyer, he plays the inmate, he plays the family man. And seeing that over the course of 13 episodes, it really highlights, one, what an amazing series it is, but actually what an incredible talent Nicholas Pinnock is. And it's great that obviously where it is loosely based on the story of Isaac Wright Jr., clearly he gave his meetings with Isaac such significant weighting and importance into his development of the character by changing his whole persona going into the first read after a 15-minute meeting. And amazing, really, that Isaac felt like the sort of dramatised interpretation of his story was actually quite cathartic to watch, to see that come together on screen. Because as we said before, it is a almost unbelievable story, which is what makes it such compelling viewing. It, it, it is incredible. And actually, there's the little things that he said, like, oh, he doesn't put his hands in his pockets and the way he's hunched over and walks in prison sometimes that you see, there's the little details that just I, I found really interesting. Well, it all comes and, together, doesn't it, to make that sort of rounded character yeah. who's so believable yeah. in the moment. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, I loved it. And not to mention, of course, I'm, I'll be waiting for Nicholas to send me a bunch of um, yellow roses in the post, I but I could that. be yeah, waiting for some drop that in. time. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might be. <laughs> So thank you to Nicholas Pinnock for coming on Plot Twist. What an amazing interview. And you can stream all episodes of Full Life on Now TV. And on to next week, we're taking a slightly different tone. I mean, the festive season, Fran, is officially open. Get the tinsel out. Put up the fairy lights. We are declaring <laughs> Christmas open from next week. And we're kickstarting the festivities with the one and only Martine McCutcheon from Love Actually. Oh, Natalie. Love Natalie. <laughs> I do think Love Actually is just that film that when people see that come on the screen, they're like, it's just a matter of days before Santa is down the chimney. Not only is it a must-see at Christmas, but it often inspires a bit of debate, Fran, as as we know all too well. I know. I feel with Love Actually, everyone is very, very invested in the characters, but 
you and I, Tom, have debated quite a controversial, I feel, kiss scene for many, many hours. So I'm uh, looking forward to getting mm. Martine's viewpoint on it. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm, I'm very confident she's going to agree with me on this. So in the meantime, deck the halls with boughs of holly <laughs> and uh, we'll see you next week. See ya. See <laughs> ya.